This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, including your story. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And this next story comes to us with the help of John Elfner, a high school history teacher and a regular contributor to our show. John is always on the hunt for a good story, and recently he asked his Uncle Henry, a Kentucky horse breeder, if he had one. Henry showed John a recent newspaper article about William King Solomon, a gravedigger who may have saved the town of Lexington during the cholera epidemic of 1833. Kentucky journalist Sam Terry tells the story of the man they called King Solomon. In November of 1854, the Reverend William M. Pratt recorded in his diary... I preached the funeral today of old King Solomon, 79 years old. He was born the same year with Henry Clay and had drunk whiskey enough to float a man of war. He was once a person of considerable enterprise and business, but he had been given to drink a great many years and yet was inoffensive and of great integrity. Quite a number of citizens attended his funeral, and he had a good coffin worth $30, and some 17 carriages processed to the cemetery. The deceased was William King Solomon, a Virginia native who claimed to have been a boyhood acquaintance of Harry, as he called Henry Clay, jesting that his own work as a digger of cellars and cisterns was less elevated than the famous statesman. His loyalty to Clay was unprecedented. When one of Clay's opponents for re-election offered strong drink to Solomon in exchange for his vote, Solomon took him up on the offer and then proceeded to vote for Clay. When asked if he had voted as agreed, Solomon replied, You may have been foolish enough to try to bribe me, but I'm not foolish enough to vote for you. During Solomon's lowest time of life, his wife died and his son ran away, sending him into a liquor-filled existence that reduced him to a vagabond whom Lexingtonians nicknamed King Solomon. By 1833, Solomon's existence, living on the streets and intoxicated, led a local judge to sell him as a servant for a period of nine months. Solomon's purchaser was the least likely of buyers. Aunt Charlotte was a free black woman who had apparently known Solomon in Virginia when he was a free white male and she was an enslaved black female. Her owners having given her freedom and bequeathed her some land, she supported herself by selling baked goods. At Solomon's auction, two Transylvania Medical College students bid on Solomon, viewing him as being near the end of his life and a future cadaver for their studies. Aunt Charlotte was the winning bidder for Solomon. Her exact bid remains a mystery. Some sources say she paid 13 cents, while others claim it was $13, and yet another maintains it was 50 cents. Whatever the price, King Solomon, the white vagrant, became the temporary property of Aunt Charlotte, the free woman of color, setting in motion one of Kentucky's renowned tales of the past. Aunt Charlotte freed Solomon, and true to his addiction, he managed to acquire some liquor before wandering back to her home where he passed out. When Solomon awakened, 
He found the town of Lexington in distress with people dying of cholera, one of the most feared maladies of the early decades of the 19th century. Referred to as Asiatic cholera due to its origin in the Far East, cholera is contracted by ingesting the Vibrio cholerea microbe via water that is contaminated with human feces. Now at this time, in 1833, the town branch ran through Lexington and heavy rains caused its banks to overflow while privies overflowed into the ground, creating a deadly mixture that poured into sinkholes only to emerge through springs and other sources of drinking water. A single bucket of contaminated water from a well or public pump had the power to wipe out an entire household. Naive individuals, unaware of the contamination, soon became victims, stricken with voluminous diarrhea after drinking even a small quantity of infected water. There was little help for the victims. Lexington's only hospital at the time was the Eastern Kentucky Lunatic Asylum. The town's physicians were principally faculty members at Transylvania's Medical College. Three of the physicians died. Another was out of town and learning of the epidemic chose not to return. And yet another rendered himself useless after a fall while trying to care for the sick and the dying. The Lexington Observer and Reporter published the names of more than 500 victims in a town with a population of 6,000. The hungover Solomon found that Aunt Charlotte, like most Lexington residents, was packing to evacuate the town. Historians have pondered how Solomon could have managed to avoid contracting cholera, most drolly concluding that his body was so well fortified with alcohol he was immune to the disease. Solomon, however, refused to leave and he began burying the dead as the gravediggers had left along with thousands of other residents. Victims of cholera were not afforded the luxury of funerals or even coffins with many bodies being wrapped in the bed linens on which they had died. Dozens of casualties were piled up near the old Episcopal burying ground on 3rd Street. Discerning the need, Solomon began digging graves to bury hundreds of bodies and in turn becoming the hero of Lexington. King Solomon continued to live in Lexington until his death in 1854. He was buried in the Lexington Cemetery, not far from the towering monument marking the grave of his boyhood friend, Henry Clay. In 1908, a large monument declaring King Solomon a hero was placed at his grave and Kentucky author James Lane Allen included the tale of King Solomon of Kentucky in his 1891 book, Flute and Violin and Other Kentucky Tales. The rest of Aunt Charlotte's story, however, remains unknown. And a special thanks to Kentucky journalist Sam Terry, and thanks as always to John Elfner. The story of William King Solomon, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love telling stories of redemption, stories to give you hope amidst your own daily struggles and the noise that's out there each and every day in the news. And now our own Joey Cortez brings us one of these stories, the story of John and Ashley Marsh. I was on a trail and a track that I couldn't get off of. I was just in this, I felt I was in a tug of war and I was the rope. This pain and suffering just got so great, I started fantasizing about killing myself. So I figured out where you got this old house with this huge attic fan. I'm gonna pull the attic fan out, set up a huge pulley up in the attic, set up where I could have it, where I knew it wouldn't break. And I got it all set up where I could hang myself out of that hole. Our ceiling eyes were 14 foot, so I'll never hit the floor. It's gonna work. And I went up there to hang myself and had no reservations. John was born in Albany, Georgia, to parents that were 14 and 17 years old. He was put up for adoption and taken in by an incredibly loving family. As a kid, he made good grades and listened to his parents until... I rebelled. You know, rebellion's interesting. It takes you further than you want to go and costs you more than you want to pay. And so um, I stepped across the line and slept with a little girl. I was 13, she was 12 rode my bicycle to her house and changed our life. Now in hindsight, I was longing for acceptance. I was looking to matter, to be valuable. Two things I found pretty quickly, you didn't have to guess whether you were accepted or not, and that was with girls. And then right after that, about 14 years old, I started working and making money. And those two things, when you were accepted, you knew it. So I started a high-end car audio business. I was mentored for a year, and then 16 years old, I was making $1,000 a week after school doing high-end audio. And uh, I stepped across the line and tried drugs for the first time, and then I proceeded to go with that and be a drug addict for probably the next however many years of my life, five, seven years of my life. Something I realize now looking back on rebellion, when you have rules and regulations without a relationship, it always equals rebellion. And so my parents loved me, but they didn't know how to reach me. I left home by 17 years old as soon as I could graduate, and I barely graduated. I was no longer interested. I was interested in making money. I said, why should I listen to y'all? I make more than you do teaching. I said, this is, I don't get it. You don't get the world y'all are trying to put me in. I didn't want to take and come into my dad's business. I wanted to do my own thing. And so I moved um, to Atlanta for just a short period of time doing high-end audio, helping them launch a shop there, and then ended up in a place called Auburn, Alabama, working for a guy named Big Jimmy at Jimmy's Car Stereo. He was a big old blonde haired blue-eyed Jew that loved me, and we became quick friends. He said, you're going to make more money than you ever made in your whole life. It's going to be awesome. I said, well, I like the sound of that. So I come here. First year I was here, I made almost $100,000 in cash as an 18-year-old boy, you know. He didn't like the girl, though, that moved here. That was my girlfriend at the time and moved here. I grew up in Pepper, Alabama. I grew up in a very simple life. Um, looking back now into it, I would say in a, a poor family. I grew up in a very hard home. I had a lot of different types of conflicts in my home from alcoholism to abuse. And first job was at KFC, and then I started working at different places in the mall. So I bought a car that uh, my first car I bought for myself. I was so proud of it. I didn't have any music, and I love music. I've always either got music in my ears, it's playing in the house, it's always in my car. It's my one thing. I'd rather have a radio than an air conditioner. I don't care. And so I just love to feel the beat and the rhythm, and I love to move. And so anyway, here I am in my car, my first car, no radio. And he's like, I oh, take it to Big Jimmy, he'll take care of you. 
was like, okay. So we get down there and um, John is who Jimmy calls up front and um, to check out my speakers because he says they're just not connected. And John's like, you don't have any speakers. She has no speakers, Jimmy. So Jimmy's like, okay, I'm gonna get her some speakers. Gets John to install it. I remember the first time I saw her, I, I really did. It's some of those things, you know, in life where, and I, I thought she was beautiful. But I, I, I recognized something more than beauty. I told her, I said, first time I ever saw you, there was a royalty and a class about you that you were like a queen without the crown. There was something so special and so unique. And I said, I saw it the very first time I saw you. Jimmy is like, you know what? I like you and I think you're a smart girl. I want you to come work for me. This is part of his plan. So he decided this girl is no more for John, but this one's the one. So he's like, you know, matchmaker in heaven going on. And so anyhow, I start working for him. And the next thing you know, he has me and John doing everything together. And I'm just, I think he's just the most amazing thing I'd ever met. You know, he wasn't from here. Thank goodness, because all the dudes from here are just idiots, um, is what I thought. And he was like James Dean to me, a little bit rebellious, which turned out to be a lot rebellious. Drove a Jeep, you know, just all the things. He just had the looks and the act and everything else about him. So I was gaga over him. But he had a girlfriend, and she was not too keen, obviously, on other girls being around. So Jimmy finally tells me, I don't like this girl that he's with, but I like you. And I was like, well, that's all good and great, but um, he has a girlfriend, and I don't date guys with girlfriends. And he's like, um, well, so you don't think you can get him? I was like, oh, no, I know I can get him. That's not a problem. And he's like, well, I bet you $500 you can't. So I took his bet, I won his bet, and I got the guy. So that's where we left off was Jimmy matchmaking us. <laughs> so she, we said, are. She, said you, she said, you're on fat man. I said, you're on fat man. We start dating. I, I, of course, I don't want to be alone much because I'm not that good of taking care of myself. I, I needed someone because I'm a bit like an Indy car. Lots of maintenance required, heavy team, and lots of people to keep all the support systems going because these cars are expensive and they break down a lot, but they're high performance. So I felt like that's the way I, I was when it came to it. So Ash came into our life and um, we began to live together. We were dating for a couple of years and then this guy came into the car stereo shop and he'd bring in these cars that had been wrecked that he was repairing and the wiring wouldn't work right on him. He'd like, can you fix this? Like, oh yeah, no problem, I'd fix it. Pretty soon I'm fixing quite a few of these. He's like, oh man, me and you need to do something together. So he's getting wrecked cars fixed up in North Alabama, taking them and getting the metal work, the framework and body work done, sending them down here, we get them painted and then I put them back together and make them work. And we're making eight, $10,000 a car doing this. We're starting going, man, we ought to be doing more of this stuff. And so, and it really felt like the first time I'd really left somebody I loved deep. I told Jimmy, I said, I want to go out on my own and do this. It was really heartbreaking because he was, he was super close to me and loved me and a great mentor. And so we went out and um, started, I started my first business in the automobile business. I think I was 20 years old when we started this business. And, um, and Ash and I living together, her dad really hated me, really hated me. His daughter comes in there at 18, says, I'm moving out, I'm moving in with this guy. And uh, she had never rebelled. She had listened to everything her parents had told her to do and done everything they said all the way up until then. And so she moved in with us. And so m quite a few nights, her mama calls, say, he's on the way. Y'all watch out. He's drunk and he's got his shotgun. So he'd come and tap on all the windows of the apartment so that we would uh, 
know that he was serious about it. So he did not want her living with me, did not want us together, which made it a little more volatile. When I moved into the apartment with him, my life changed completely. I did find out that he was doing drugs. None of us are who we peacock ourselves to be. The moments of sitting and listening to Kenny G and looking into my eyes and you're the most important thing in the world and was true only until I moved in. I didn't know how to love a lady and that's one of the things I've realized is it's not intuitive. I mean, you've got more preparation to get a license or learner's permit for your car than to get married. <laughs> and so when we came into this relationship together, I began to immediately dominate her instead of love her and tell her what I wasn't gonna do and who she couldn't be. And, and she was trapped again. And so um, within a short period of time of us living together, looking back now, I realized she was trapped. I just said, I gotta move forward. And I, and I said, I, I love this girl. I'm gonna marry her and we're gonna keep moving forward. And I was in business, we were running two or three businesses at that time by, by 21 years old. I was a million and a half dollars in debt, $99,000 overdrawn. I was a drug addict. We were running multiple businesses and we were in serious trouble. And you're listening to the story of John and Ashley Marsh. And do any of the characters sound familiar? Because if they don't, you haven't lived much of a life. When we come back, we're going to continue with their remarkable story. And if you have stories like it, folks, we love just basic relationship stories. We want them warts and all. We want the raw, real story. We don't do fake relationship stories here on this show. And you can send those stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More of John and Ashley Marsh's story here on Our American Stories. Hey all, this is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. From the donations to the stories, without you, we wouldn't be here today. Thanks again for listening to the show. More of Our American Stories after the break. continue here with Our American Stories, and we left off with Ashley discovering that John was a drug addict and in serious debt, and the two obviously were not getting along. But despite the turmoil, the two got married. Let's return to the story. Ash and I find out we're pregnant, but there's just so many problems, and and so I've got a partner. I'm in this business. We're in lots of debt. I'm doing the work myself because I'm gifted with my hands. He's running the money. He comes to me one day and he said, I got to tell you something, Ash has been running around on you for a while. She's seeing one of our employees, relation tactic, but I felt like, well, my whole life fell apart. Everything I ever wanted, he can't trust it. And I said, okay, I know what you do. You get a new wife, you get a new life, get a new vehicle, reboot, get the best lawyer you can and fight. Started going to lawyers, we're setting up the things, and Ash and I are fighting. I'm doing all I can to try to find a way to win. 
to hurt her and win. The pressure was incredible. And I started hearing something in my mind and it kept going, why don't you kill yourself? Why don't you kill yourself? Why don't you kill yourself? And it became louder and louder and louder. I felt I was in a tug of war and I was the rope. And this pain and suffering of this just got so great, I started fantasizing about killing myself. So I figured out where you got this old house with this huge attic fan. I'm gonna pull the attic fan out, set up a huge pulley up in the attic, set up where I could have it, where I knew it wouldn't break. And I got it all set up where I could hang myself out of that hole. Our ceiling knives were 14 foot, so I'll never hit the floor. It's gonna work. And I went up there to hang myself and had no reservations. But I got down on that old plywood floor and started crying out to God I'd never met before. And the, the, it got reframed. Instead of kill myself, he said, why don't you die to yourself? Now it was so similar yet so different. And there was light and life in that. And I cried out to a God I never knew. Like lightning struck me, every hair on my body stood up. Time stood still. And for about two solid hours, every care, hurt, pain, suffering, regret, mistake I've made, like a syringe got pushed out of the bottom of my feet to the top of my head and out in tears. And I said, this is what I always wanted. This is what I've always been looking for right here. Nothing has ever filled me like this. Nothing's ever felt like this. I told myself, follow you all the days of my life, no matter what. You have me without any conditions. And so it began the journey of me beginning to find out what God had for me. And I didn't quit drugs, they quit me. Mm -hmm. I walked out of that place forever changed. Got struck by lightning. I was still seeing the gentleman that I had committed adultery with and found out that I was pregnant. And I didn't know if I was pregnant with John's child or his child. And that's what broke me. Not finding out I was pregnant, but I ended up losing the child. And at that moment was when I had nothing left. There, there, there was nothing left. I had no more ideas, no more solutions, no more energy, nothing to try to figure out life for myself or why I wanted to be in it or anything else. I never thought about suicide. I just felt so desperately alone. By the skin of their teeth, John and Ash evaded divorce. They met a few mentors that taught them how to love and how to be loved, how to forgive and how to heal. And so their life together began anew. One of our mentors that we met selling a car to, that started a relationship. He actually counseled us. He's like, you got to get out of living in the basement of this house. You know, you've got to fix upstairs. You've got, you know, this is something that's important. This is your home. We lived in the basement of our house for six and a half years in a one-bedroom apartment. That's what he's talking about, all cramped in there. It was me, John, Nelson, our oldest, a dog, and a friend. It took us a while to work on that house, and it was in the middle of that same neighborhood that had all the prostitutes and the drug addicts and just destitution, no hope. I mean, when you looked around, um, every house was broken. Everything looked abandoned, and so ours fit in the neighborhood up until we worked on it, and then we turned the lights on, and the next thing you know, we were like a beacon in the neighborhood. But it honestly was just a reflection, literally, of what was happening in us. And so we were working together, um, trying to work on that house and everything. That's when he transitioned from going from doing the cars and everything. He's like, I really like this. And we got through that. I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, I like this. I like doing this. So we started doing houses and we did two things. We're renovating houses there in our town. And then I got this idea. Ash fell in love with a house in Albany. She said, baby, it's a beautiful house I'd love to buy. And so I started thinking, I said, what if I unbuilt it backwards? 
What if I just disassembled it? Took the last thing they put in, took that out, and just unbuilt it backwards. So that's the first house we ever disassembled. We took it apart in 90 days, driving 120 miles one way after work, and unbuilt it backward to the boards. We put our $3,300 tax return in that baby, sold it and made $15,000. That's what we rolled into doing everything we did. I started our architectural salvage business. Next thing you know, we're doing houses like crazy. She would do the design work, I'd run the crews, and next thing you know, we had done 75 houses in that one neighborhood with no money. Our guys started saying, well, John, you need to keep some of this, because if not, why don't you keep, do 10 houses for others, keep one for yourself. Well, next thing I know, we got a pile of property going. And then I got, we got to come up with a rental business. So we're running a construction business, architectural salvage, and a rental business. And we almost finished everything in our neighborhood over there. We've done like 70 or so houses. And I was like, well, what are we going to do next? She's like, well, downtown Obelika was super junky. In fact, right before we started buying our first houses down there, two ladies were executed by a gang member downtown Opelika. It was just, it was broken. She said, I can't walk by this one more time and see it this way. we got to do something. I said, well, let's buy the whole place. She's like, we ain't got any money. I said, it doesn't matter. If it's something we're supposed to do, the provision's gonna be there. Provision is down the road. We just gotta keep stepping. I only need enough caulk and paint for today. If I got enough for today, tomorrow's gonna be there. So now, looking back, we've done 210 structures in 10 blocks, and we've helped start over 40 businesses to the saving of our city. And see, God loves cities. It was his idea from the start. I think God invented cities, but we're interested in seeing them redeemed. There's restoration and redemption for cities, just like people. And what we began to realize is we don't just make structures, structures make us. One thing I learned about cities, number one is the biggest mistake, we believe if we fix the buildings, it would save our city. And it doesn't. Renovation is not revitalization. It's just renovation. And you can fix the stuff up and it'd be dead inside. It's like a movie set. People in businesses add the life to buildings. And we learn one of the first things we always do is start with food, because so much meaningful happens at the table. You decide who to marry, where to bury, what's gonna happen. Very few things are incarnate. You don't stick a lot inside your body. Food matters. And good food people will drive for. I can get people to drive the worst part of the neighborhood for good barbecue. And so we'll start with food and fellowship. And we can build one iconic amazing food place in a town and transform a town. People start coming from an hour away. One little town we're working in has 3,500 people and the first restaurant we worked on there sees 8,800 people a month. So it's drawing people from all around. Mm -hmm. So our work now for Ash and I is to consult, help people who want to change cities, who share our same vision and values. We think there will be a time to come that people are going to recognize that historic downtowns in this fabric are irreplaceable real estate when they're under professional management, thoughtful vision, and a team that has a collaborated approach to where they're going that just does good and does well. And can you do both? Yes, except no less than to do good and do well. We've got a vision for saving cities. And we've been listening to John and Ashley Marsh, and what a story this is. I felt I was in a tug of war, and I was the rope. That's how it started. He was looking to kill himself, and his wife, well, she was at the end of her rope, too. But then something happened. He said he cried out to a God he never knew. And boy, did he get a reply. And ultimately, he said, I didn't quit drugs, they quit me. 
And they went about restoring not only their lives, but the lives of the people around them by restoring houses. But again, a house without a restoration of the people inside it is not much. Doing good and being provided for well, doing good and doing well, it's possible. And changing your life and turning it around, turning around a bad marriage. We like to tell these stories because it's possible if you're in the middle of a tough one now. Well, seek help and spiritual counseling helps. Any kind of counseling helps, but my goodness, so often our problems are spiritual problems. And we don't shy away from them here on this show. John and Ashley Marsh's story, a remarkable renovation story, here on Our American Stories. stories and now we continue our series better health at lower cost and we've talked about blue zones there are five regions in the world characterized by dan butner in his book as places that include the following in their lifestyle moderate to regular physical activity life purpose stress reduction moderate caloric intake plant-based diet moderate alcohol intake engagement in spirituality or religion engagement in family life, and engagement in social life. But if these are the types of things people in the Blue Zones are doing, who are the actual people that live in these types of places? Today, we introduce you to two of the younger members of their community in Loma Linda, California, Zella and David Floor. I was born in New Mexico in 1930, in the beginning of the Great Depression. My parents were relatively poor, so then I ended up going to Linwood Academy, which is an Adventist church school, and a a PUC, Pacific Union College, which is an Adventist college in Northern California. And then I came here to Loma Linda to take the nurses course, and I graduated in 1953. So I'm an old timer around Loma Linda. From an early age, probably, I, I wanted to be in forestry work. Ended up at Humboldt State University and got a degree in forest management, bachelor of science. And from there went to work for the United States Forest Service. 38 years later, I retired. Well, I, I was working on the San Bernardino National Forest, these mountains right over here. Yeah, I'd worked on there for 18 years, actually, all, all in different positions. And uh, I'd just gone through a divorce and uh, needed to start branching out a little bit after a couple years. And my first wife and I were hardened square dancers. Anyway, I was working at, at following my divorce, and, and I had at that time two nearly grown girls. One of them was at PUC, and the other one was at Monterey Bay Academy. I needed to get myself in gear and, and earn some money to keep those kids in school. And so I, I, I left Salt Lake City, came here to Loma Linda to my alma mater, and got a job in the medical center. And so, and this was a long time ago, 40 years ago, in 76, 77, something like that. Mm-hmm. After a couple of years, and I, I, I needed more of a social life. I was 48 years old. That's, it may seem a little old, <laughs> but it, it isn't, it's quite young. And so uh, I had some friends who were square dancers and they said, oh, well, we know a, a caller who is starting a new class which of course took eight or nine months. 
when we were all through with our class, the square dance clubs came around and were inviting us to come to different places. So this square dance met at, in Highland, in, over here in San Bernardino, and they met on Sunday afternoons, which was perfect for me because I was working a shift in the, in the hospital where I had to get up at 5.30 every morning. So I couldn't go in the evenings. So the afternoon was fine. Sunday afternoon at four o'clock, I think it was, we had our square dance over there. So I met over there, and I think it was the second time we were there, he showed up. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> we, were, we were accidentally put in the same square. The, the caller says, find your squares. And we ended up in the same square. And we ended up sitting the next, the next one out, getting acquainted. <laughs> then two years later, we were married. He was not uh, born and raised a Seventh-day Adventist, as I was. And so I come from a little bit different background, a different lifestyle, although not that much different. No, I grew up as a Presbyterian. Well, then when I went to college, I kind of got away from church. It was come and go, you know, and now that I met Zella, it's been steady going to church every week for 40 years now. Yeah. The thing of it is the Adventists go to church on, on Saturday, and so uh, we don't do square dancing on that. So, you know, so he, he says, why can't we go square dancing on Friday night or Saturday? Well, I'm busy. Well, well, after a month or two, you know, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? On, and I said, well, I, I go to church. <laughs> what do I have to do to go to church with you? Well, you come pick me up and dress be decently behave and yourself. behave yourself, <laughs> and, and then you can take me to church. <laughs> and we were married at the, uh, at the age of, we were both around, close around 50. In the meantime, I had had cancer, breast cancer. In a healthful living person, it happens about six months after we met and then we, we after we were married we've been married about six months i had it again the other breast it was breast cancer each time how does a healthy living person who is concentrating on being healthful get such a horrible thing as cancer it happens it happens among the best of us that i i've got friends in here who have had cancer who have had cancer that that's no uh, healthful living is no indication that you're not going to have things go wrong with you. You know, we have, uh, we have genetic things that happen. We live, we're living in a, in a, in a contaminated world. Uh, we've got inherited gene variants, you know, as, as we learn more about genetics, there, there are variants that, that come along that we inherit. And uh, my mother had breast cancer. My, her, her mother did, her sister did, uh, so there, it's, it's there. It doesn't happen. I, I was tested to see if I had it in the genetic makeup, and I don't. I don't have it in the genetic makeup. It just happened, and that's what things are. But but I feel that uh, my cancer was 40 years ago. Count them, 40 years ago, and I count my survival from the breast cancer and my healthful life now because of the healthful condition I was in from my healthful living. Just because you get unhealthy things like this doesn't mean that it comes from your lifestyle. It, it can or it cannot, but your life, a healthy lifestyle will help you to overcome the problems that we run into. When I was all through, I had chemotherapy for the second time. The first time I did not need any chemotherapy. I asked the doctor who was, who was taking care of me to let me get a, a second opinion from someone just to make sure that we hadn't forgotten something. And he said, I think we'll just send you over to Stanford. Anyway, we went, to, we went over to Stanford and saw this doctor. I can't remember his name now, it doesn't matter, because it was a long time ago. He probably has retired 40 years ago. 
and uh, and and he said everything is fine. You you look good. You've had good treatment. You've had everything. He said I have two things to tell you to do. Number one is to keep your weight down, and number two is to keep a positive attitude. Now I myself broke those two things down. To keep my weight down, what do I need to do? You need to have a healthy diet. You need to exercise. You need to do all these things that go towards making making you healthy, fresh air, plenty of water. All of these things help to keep your weight down. And the second thing, how do you keep a positive frame of mind? It's your family. This is the this is the, your surrounding your support system. It's your family. It's your church. It's your attitude. Your things that you do with your mind. How you keep active. I try to make it a habit to learn something new, as I can. I read a lot. Now I'm in my late 80s. And there are more people here in their 90s than you could shake a stick at. You know, they're just—we've got a couple here who are just hanging on for their 100th birthday, and they're doing fine. Uh, and I plan to be one of them one of these days. Not there yet. Well, I ended up my career in San Francisco at the regional office of the Forest Service, and. Uh, I retired and we said, well, where are we going to live? You can live anywhere you want in the world. We decided to move here. And so we, we've been looking at retirement communities and settled on this one. And everybody says, why? And I says, it feels like home. It's a wonderful place to live. It's a fun place to live. We go to the Drayson three times a week. We go to a class over there that, uh, that, that caters to us uh, older people. <laughs> but uh, they, they call it chair aerobics. And so they do things that get our heart rate up and, and, and they, we practice on balance and we practice on things that, that are important for older people to keep from falling and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We're very fortunate to be in a place where we have all these things uh, you know, uh, for us to use. The one thing we appreciate about the Drayson Center is when you're over 80, we have the run of the gymnasium for free. We take advantage of it as much as we can. I go down there and walk the, the outside track. There's an outside track there that, uh, that uh, if you walk it twice, you've walked a mile. And uh, we get down there. It's a, it's a quarter of a mile to walk up here to the gym. It's been a wonderful support to me. And that has been, that has been one of the things that has contributed to my good health, I'm, I'm sure. It, it has to be. Uh, I don't have any, any problems like that. So You know, this, this blue zone thing, We've, we've talked about, we talk about, a lot about it here. And most, there's nothing magic about Loma Linda. Everybody's come from someplace else that lives here. I mean, they come from Japan and all over the world. They've come here and they live here where we are. And so the blue zone is all over. It's the lifestyle. And of course, I will have to say that we're not perfect in following the blue zone recommendations. You know, but all of us, we, we we, you know, we fall down occasionally, we, we eat too much ice cream, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, but generally, we're, we, we try to live as healthy and close to our, uh, to our lifestyle as we can. Our healthy diet, our use of water, our exercise, our sleep, our rest, uh, our, our sense of community, our family, and our faith and trust in God. Those are the things that make the Blue Zone. And you've been listening to Zella and David Floor, and great job on that, Robbie, who went out to Loma Linda to study and to look at and learn from these remarkable people who have turned Loma Linda into a blue zone. Again, only five in the world 
One happens to be right here in the United States. And as well, as Ella said, you can trip over 90-year-olds here. And the 90-year-olds are out there walking more than most 40 or 50-year-olds probably each and every day. This is a part of our Better Health at Lower Cost series brought to us by the great people at the Stetson Family Office. Zella and David Floor's story, in the end, Loma Linda's story, and we're going to continue with more from this remarkable piece of earth in California, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And this next story is a story of regret from Liz Faria. We came across this story on Liz's blog, AmothershipDown.com. Here's Liz with her story. It was something about the phrasing that got to me. Something about the cadence of his words, the staccato of his speech. Nobody loves me, not even my mother who gave birth to me. It's an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? Not even my mother who gave birth to me. He was buckled into the back seat of my Toyota, still too little to sit up front. At seven, he had already moved more times than the total number of years he had been on the earth. And this time, like the times before it, he moved with his belongings in a trash bag. A suitcase, at least, would have added a small degree of dignity to the whole affair, to being placed in another and another and yet another foster home before reaching the third grade. Trash bags break, you know. Trash bags can't possibly support the contents of any life, and certainly not a life as fragile as this. They break from the strain, eventually. This move was harder for Stephen than most. It was a home he thought he would stay in, at least for a while. He had felt affection there. When I went to pick him up, after his foster mother gave notice that he could no longer stay, he came easily with me. Head down, no reaction on the surface of it. It was only when he got into my car that he began to sob the kind of aching sound that leaves you limp in its wake. He could barely get out the words. Nobody loves me not even my mother, who gave birth to me. Months later, in a repeat scene, another foster mother, another removal, he would put up a fight. He would run around the living room, ducking behind furniture, refusing to leave. But on this night, he had no fight in him. That was Stephen at seven. Nine-year-old Stephen grips his report card in sweaty hands. We're headed to an adoption event where we'll meet families who want to adopt an older child. Families who do not automatically rule out a boy like Stephen with all of his long history. And he wants to impress them, these strangers. He wants to win them over, and so he brings his good report card along as tangible proof that he's a child worth loving. A child should never have to prove that he's worth loving. Twelve-year-old Stephen tells me that I'm his best friend. I'm his social worker, and he should have a real best friend, but I don't say this to him. We're at a taping for Wednesday's Child, the news spot featuring children who are up for adoption. Stephen's engaging on camera. Maybe someone will pick him this time. Maybe he's offering just enough evidence at 12 that he's a boy worth loving. 
And he is lovable, truly. But it's not enough. A family never comes. Years later, long after I've left the agency, I get an email from my old boss asking how I'm doing and ending with a short P.S. Stevens in DYS lockup after running away from his foster home. You need to adopt him. My stomach drops. I've had this thought many times. I should adopt him myself, but I don't. I heard about his murder from a friend who had seen it in the news. Shot outside a party over some foolish dispute. Dead at 18, dead just as he became a man. Not my Stephen, I prayed. When I realized that it was really him, that it could be no other, I sobbed, gripped by the kind of anguish that leaves you limp in its wake. What have we all done? What haven't we all done? The newspapers ran very little about the murder, as if it were an afterthought. Barely worth a mention, really. Anonymous strangers posted nasty comments online. Just another gangbanger, they said. You don't even know him. You don't know the first thing about this boy. You don't know that as a child, he would trace letters into my back with his finger to pass time at the doctor's office, asking me to guess what phrase he was spelling out. I, heart, you, he traced between my shoulders the last time we played this game. Stephen had been wrong that night in my Toyota. His mother did love him in her way. She was there at the funeral. She greeted me kindly. I think she knew I loved Stephen as I knew she did. We both failed him in the end, and that joined us, I suppose. Neither of us could give him a family. There were no photos from Stephen's childhood at the funeral home. No images of the green-eyed boy with the sweet smile to remind us of what had been lost. There were no pictures of Stephen with his brothers, and so I printed up snapshots of the four boys together, taken on a supervised visit, and brought them to the funeral home to give to the family. It was something I could do, against the larger backdrop of nothing I could do. There were very few social workers at the funeral, and none of Stephen's many foster mothers. Were they even told he was dead? Stephen spent more of his life being raised in the system than out of it. If you claim legal responsibility for a child, you best show up at his funeral. You should show up when he dies. He was yours in a way, wasn't he? You owe it to him. And if he didn't belong to you, then who did he ever belong to? His mother was there at least. His mother who gave birth to him. I hear the echo of his voice from those many years ago. Somebody does love you, Stephen, I want to tell him. But it's too late. Stephen was the one for me. The one who embodied all the failures of a system so broken that to heal it would take far more than the casts that heal the literal broken bones of the children growing up within it. They break, you know. These kids we leave behind. Eventually they break. They do eventually break. And there are so many sad stories like this around this great country. They shouldn't happen. They do. And what beautiful storytelling by Liz Faria. And by the way, her blog, amothershipdown.com, you can find more writing like it. And it's sad and it's hard, but we don't shy away from any kind of story here on Our American Stories. Nobody loves me, not even my mother who gave birth to me. Just ponder that, folks. A child should never have to prove his worth. He's worth loving. I mean, this kid would go on audition. Love me. And then he wouldn't get picked. Heck, it broke my heart as a young actor when I went on auditions, and it was just an acting part, and someone didn't pick me. I just can't even imagine what that would be like, that kind of rejection. He was murdered, dead at 18, just as he was to become a man. 
What have we all done? What haven't we all done? Again, that's Liz Faria. An adoption story that didn't happen. A great regret in her life. How many of us could prevent something like this from happening? We'll continue to do stories like this, hoping that some of us will open that door to our homes to a boy like Stephen. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about all kinds of things here on this show. And we love spending time on music, arts, and literature. Jack London's most famous works include The Call of the Wild and White Fang, both set in the Klondike Gold Rush, as well as his short story, To Build a Fire. Here's Greg Hengler with more on Jack London. Jack London carved out his own hard scrabble life as a teen. In his free time, he hunkered down at libraries, soaking up novels and travel books. His life as a writer essentially began in 1893. That year, he had weathered a treacherous voyage, one in which a typhoon had nearly taken out London and his crew. The 17-year-old adventurer had made it home and regaled his mother with his tales of what happened to him. When she saw an announcement in one of the local newspapers for a writing contest, she pushed her son to write down and submit his story. Armed with just an 8th grade education, London captured the $25 first prize, beating out college students from Berkeley and Stanford. For London, the contest was an eye-opening experience, and he decided to dedicate his life to writing short stories but he had trouble finding willing publishers. In fact, Jack London kept all of his rejection letters from the first five years of his writing career and impaled each one of them on a spindle. The impaled letters, 600 of them, eventually reached a height of four feet. When White Fang was first published in 1906, Jack London was well on his way to becoming one of the most famous, popular, and highly paid writers in the world. In fact, London was the first author in the world to become a millionaire from his writing. He died at his California ranch on November 22, 1916. He was 40 years old. To Build a Fire takes place in the snowy world of the Yukon where it's so cold your spit freezes before it even hits the ground. After spending a very influential part of his young life mining for gold in the Arctic North, London returned to the States a changed man. He was certain that civilization and its modern conveniences had turned everyone, and men in particular, into a bunch of wimps, and he felt that people needed to reconnect with their natural instincts and common sense if they wished to remain strong against the pampering forces of the modern world. Here to narrate the gripping finale of Jack London's masterpiece, To Build a Fire, is Roger McGrath. McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. 
a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. When it is 75 below zero, a man must not fail in his first attempt to build a fire. That is, if his feet are wet, if his feet are dry and he fails, he can run along the trail for half a mile and restore his circulation. But the circulation of wet and freezing feet cannot be restored by running when it is 75 below. No matter how fast he runs, the wet feet will freeze the harder. All this the man knew. The old-timer on Sulphur Creek had told him about it the previous fall, and now he was appreciating the advice. Already all sensation had gone out of his feet. To build the fire, he had been forced to remove his mittens, and the fingers had quickly gone numb. His pace of four miles an hour had kept his heart pumping blood to the surface of his body and to all the extremities. But the instant he stopped, the action of the pump eased down. The cold of space smote the unprotected tip of the planet, and he, being on that unprotected tip, received the full force of the blow. The blood of his body recoiled before it. The blood was alive, like the dog, and like the dog it wanted to hide away and cover itself from the fearful cold. So long as he walked four miles an hour, he pumped that blood willy-nilly to the surface. But now it ebbed away and sank into the recesses of his body. The extremities were the first to feel its absence. His wet feet froze the faster and his exposed fingers numbed the faster, though they had not yet begun to freeze. Nose and cheeks were already freezing, while the skin of all his body chilled as it lost its blood. But he was safe. Toes and nose and cheeks would only be touched by the frost, for the fire was beginning to burn with strength. He was feeding it with twigs the size of his finger, in another minute, he would be able to feed it with branches the size of his wrist, and then he could remove his wet footgear, and while it dried, he could keep his naked feet warm by the fire, rubbing them at first, of course, with snow. The fire was a success. He was safe. He remembered the advice of the old timer on Sulphur Creek and smiled. The old timer had been very serious in laying down the law that no man must travel alone in the Klondike after fifty below. Well, here he was. He had had the accident. He was alone, and he had saved himself. Those old timers were rather womanish, some of them, he thought. All a man had to do was keep his head, and he was all right. Any man who was a man 
could travel alone. But it was surprising, the rapidity with which his cheeks and nose were freezing. And he had not thought his fingers could go lifeless in so short a time. Lifeless they were, for he could scarcely make them move together to grip a twig, and they seemed remote from his body and from him. When he touched a twig, he had to look and see whether or not he had hold of it. The wires were pretty well down between him and his finger ends. All of which counted for little. There was the fire snapping and crackling and promising life with every dancing flame. He started to untie his moccasins. They were coated with ice. The thick German socks were like sheaths of iron halfway up to his knee. And the moccasin strings were like rods of steel, all twisted and knotted as by some conflagration. For a moment he tugged his numb fingers, then realizing the folly of it, he drew his sheath knife. But before he could cut the strings, it happened. It was his own fault, or rather his mistake. He should not have built the fire under the spruce tree. He should have built it in the open. But it had been easier to pull the twigs from the brush and drop them directly on the fire. Now the tree, under which he had done this, carried a weight of snow on its boughs. No wind had blown for weeks, and each bough was fully freighted. Each time he pulled a twig, it communicated a slight agitation to the tree, an imperceptible agitation so far as he was concerned, but an agitation sufficient to bring about the disaster. High up in the tree, one bough capsized its load of snow. This fell on the boughs beneath, capsizing them. This process continued, spreading out and involving the whole tree. It grew like an avalanche, and it descended without warning upon the man in the fire, and the fire was blotted out. Where it had burned was a mantle of fresh and disordered snow. The man was shocked. It was as though he had just heard his own sentence of death. For a moment he sat and stared at the spot where the fire had been. Then he grew very calm. Perhaps the old timer on Sulphur Creek was right. If he had only had a trail mate, he would have been in no danger now. The trail mate could have built the fire. And we're listening to Roger McGrath, our in-house historian on all things frontier, reading Jack London's Remarkable to Build a Fire. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of this story, my favorite, and so many people's around the world. Jack London, the first millionaire writer in history, and who had faced lots of rejection. His story continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and Roger McGrath's reading of To Build a Fire. Let's pick up where we last left off. Well, it was up to him to build the fire over again. And the second time, there must be no failure. Even if he succeeded, he would most likely lose some toes. His feet must be badly frozen by now, and there would be some time before the second fire was ready. Such were his thoughts, but he did not sit and think them. He was busy all the time they were passing through his mind. He made a new foundation for a fire, this time in the open, where no treacherous tree could blot it out. Next, he gathered dry grasses and tiny twigs from the high-water flotsam. He could not bring his fingers together to pull them out, but he was able to gather them by the handful. In this way, he got many rotten twigs and bits of green moss that were undesirable, but it was the best he could do. He worked methodically, even collecting an armful of the larger branches to be used later when the fire gathered strength. And all the while, the dog sat and watched him, a certain yearning wistfulness in its eyes, for it looked upon him as the fire provider, and the fire was slow in coming. When all was ready, the man reached in his pocket for a second piece of birch bark. He knew the bark was there, and though he could not feel it with his fingers, he could hear its crisp rustling as he fumbled for it. Try as he would, he could not clutch hold of it. And all the time, in his consciousness, was the knowledge that each instant his feet were freezing. This thought tended to put him in a panic, but he fought against it and kept calm. He pulled on his mittens with his teeth and thrust his arms back and forth, beating his hands with all his might against his sides. He did this sitting down, and he stood up to do it. And all the while the dog sat in the snow, its wolf brush of a tail curled warmly over its forefeet, its sharp wolf ears pricked forward intently as it watched the man. And the man, as he beat and threshed his arms and hands, felt a great surge of envy as he regarded the creature that was warm and secure in its natural covering. After a time, he was aware of the first faraway signals of sensation in his beaten fingers. The faint tingling grew stronger till it evolved into a stinging ache that was excruciating, but which the man hailed with satisfaction. He stripped the mitten from his right hand and fetched forth the birch bark. The exposed fingers were quickly going numb again. Next, he brought out his bunch of sulfur matches. But the tremendous cold had already driven the life out of his fingers. In his effort to separate one match from the others, the whole bunch fell in the snow. He tried to pick it out of the snow, but failed. The dead fingers could neither touch nor clutch. He was very careful. He drove the thought of his freezing feet and nose and cheeks out of his mind, devoting his whole soul to the matches. He watched using the sense of vision in place of that of touch. And when he saw his fingers on each side of the bunch, he closed them. That is, he willed to close them. For the wires were down, and the fingers did not obey. He pulled the mitten on his right hand and beat it fiercely against his knee. 
Then, with both mittened hands, he scooped the bunch of matches, along with much snow, into his lap. Yet, he was no better off. After some manipulation, he managed to get the bunch between the heels of his mittened hands. In this fashion, he carried it to his mouth. The ice crackled and snapped when, by a violent effort, he opened his mouth. He drew the lower jaw in, curled the upper lip out of the way, and scraped the bunch with his upper teeth in order to separate a match. He succeeded in getting one, which he dropped on his lap. He was no better off. He could not pick it up. Then he devised a way. He picked it up in his teeth and scratched it on his leg. Twenty times he scratched before he succeeded in lighting it. As it flamed, he held it with his teeth to the birch bark. But the burning brimstone went up his nostrils and into his lungs, causing him to cough spasmodically. The match fell into the snow and went out. The old timer on Sulphur Creek was right, he thought in the moment of control of the spear that ensued. After fifty below, a man should travel with a partner. He beat his hands, but failed in exciting any sensation. Suddenly, he bared both hands, removing the mittens with his teeth. He caught the whole bunch between the heels of his hands. His arm muscles, not being frozen, enabled him to press the hand heels tightly against the matches. Then he scratched the bunch along his leg. It flared into flame. Seventy sulfur matches at once. There was no wind to blow them out. He kept his head to one side to escape the strangling fumes and held the blazing bunch to the birch bark. As he so held it, he became aware of sensation in his hand. His flesh was burning. He could smell it. Deep down below the surface, he could feel it. The sensation developed in a pain that grew acute, and still he endured it, holding the flame of matches clumsily to the bark that would not light readily because his own burning hands were in the way, absorbing most of the flame. At last, when he could endure no more, he jerked his hands apart. The blazing matches fell sizzling into the snow, but the birch bark was alight. He began laying dry grasses and the tiniest twigs on the flame. He could not pick and choose, for he had to lift the fuel between the heels of his hands. Small pieces of rotten wood and green moss clung to the twigs, and he bit them off as well as he could with his teeth. He cherished the flame carefully and awkwardly. It meant life, and it must not perish. The withdrawal of blood from the surface of his body now made him begin to shiver, and he grew more awkward. A large piece of green moss fell squarely on the little fire. He tried to poke it out with his fingers, but his shivering frame made him poke too far, and he disrupted the little nucleus of the little fire, the burning grasses and tiny twigs separated and scattering. He tried to poke them together again, but in spite of the tenseness of his effort, his shivering got away with him, and the twigs were hopelessly scattered. Each twig 
gushed a puff of smoke and went out. The fire provider had failed. As he looked apathetically about him, his eyes chanced on the dog, sitting across the ruins of the fire from him, in the snow, making restless, hunching movements, slightly lifting one forefoot and then the other, shifting its weight back and forth on them with wistful eagerness. The sight of the dog put a wild idea into his head. He remembered the tale of a man caught in a blizzard who killed a steer and crawled inside the carcass and so was saved. He would kill the dog and bury his hands in the warm body until the numbness went out of them. Then he could build another fire. And you've been listening to Dr. Roger McGrath and telling the story of To Build a Fire, Jack London's classic. And we like to do this periodically because these stories, well, they must live on and they've been sort of almost eviscerated from the curriculum of most schools. When we come back, we continue with Jack London's To Build a Fire, the final installment here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories in the final installment of Jack London's To Build a Fire. Let's return to Dr. Roger McGrath. He spoke to the dog, calling it to him. But in his voice was a strange note of fear that frightened the animal, who had never known the man to speak in such way before. Something was the matter and its suspicious nature sensed danger. It knew not what danger, but somewhere, somehow, in its brain arose an apprehension of the man. It flattened its ears down at the sound of the man's voice, and its restless, hunching movements, and the liftings and shiftings of its forefeet became more pronounced. But it would not come to the man. He got on his hands and knees and crawled toward the dog, This unusual posture again excited suspicion, and the animal sidled mincingly away. The man sat up in the snow for a moment and struggled for calmness. Then he pulled on his mittens by means of his teeth and got upon his feet. He glanced down at first in order to assure himself that he was really standing up for the absence of sensation in his feet left him unrelated to the earth. His erect position in itself started to drive the webs of suspicion from the dog's mind. And when he spoke, peremptorily, with the sound of whiplashes in his voice, the dog rendered its customary allegiance and came to him. As it came within reaching distance, The man lost control. His arms flashed out to the dog, and he experienced genuine surprise when he discovered that his hands could not clutch. 
that there was neither bin nor feeling in his fingers. He had forgotten for the moment that they were frozen and that they were freezing more and more. All this happened quickly, and before the animal could get away, he encircled its body with his arms. He sat down in the snow, and in this fashion held the dog while it snarled and whined and struggled. But it was all he could do, hold its body encircled in his arms and sit there. He realized he could not kill the dog. There was no way to do it. With his helpless hands, he could neither draw nor hold his sheath knife nor throttle the animal. He released it, and it plunged wildly away, with tail between its legs and still snarling. It halted forty feet away and surveyed him curiously, with ears sharply pricked forward. The man looked down at his hands in order to locate them, and found them hanging on the ends of his arms. It struck him as curious that no one should have to use his eyes in order to find out where his hands were. He began threshing his arms back and forth, beating the mittened hands against his sides. He did this for five minutes, violently, and his heart pumped enough blood to the surface to put a stop to his shivering. But no sensation was aroused in his hands. He had an impression that they were hung like weights on the ends of his arms. But when he tried to run the impression down, he could not find it. A certain fear of death, dull and oppressive, came to him. This fear quickly became poignant as he realized that it was no longer a mere matter of freezing his fingers and toes or of losing his hands and feet, but that it was a matter of life and death with the chances against him. This threw him into a panic, and he turned and ran up the creek bed along the old dim trail. The dog joined in behind and kept up with him. He ran blindly, without intention, in fear such as he had never known in his life. Slowly, as he plowed and floundered through the snow, he began to see things again. The banks of the creek, the old timber jams, the leafless aspens, and the sky. The running made him feel better. He did not shiver. Maybe if he ran on, his feet would thaw out. And anyway, if he ran far enough, he would reach camp and the boys. Without doubt, he would lose some fingers and toes and some of his face. But the boys would take care of him and save the rest of him when he got there. And at the same time, there was another thought in his mind that said he would never get to the camp and the boys that it was too many miles away, that the freezing had too great a start on him, and that he would soon be stiff and dead. This thought he kept in the background and refused to consider. Sometimes it pushed itself forward and demanded to be heard, but he thrust it back and strove to think of other things. It struck him as curious that he could run at all on feet so frozen that he could not feel them when they struck the earth and took the weight of his body. He seemed to himself to skim above the surface and to have no connection with the earth. Somewhere he had once seen a winged mercury, and he wondered if mercury felt as he felt when skimming over the earth. His theory of running until he reached camp and the boys had one flaw in it. He lacked endurance. Several times he stumbled, and finally he tottered, crumpled up, and fell. When he tried to rise, he failed. He must sit and rest, he decided.
and next time he would merely walk and keep on going. As he sat and regained his breath, he noted that he was feeling quite warm and comfortable. He was not shivering, and it even seemed that a warm glow had come to his chest and trunk. And yet, when he touched his nose or cheeks, there was no sensation. Runny would not thaw them out, nor would it thaw out his hands and feet. Then the thought came to him that the frozen portions of his body must be extending. He tried to keep the thought down, to forget it, to think of something else. He was aware of the panicky feeling that it caused, and he was afraid of the panic. But the thought asserted itself and persisted until it produced a vision of his body totally frozen. This was too much, and he made another wild run along the trail. Once he slowed down to walk, but the thought of the freezing extending itself made him run again. And all the time the dog ran with him at his heels. When he fell down a second time, it curled its tail over its forefeet and sat in front of him, facing him, curiously eager and intent. The warmth and security of the animal angered him, and he cursed it till it flattened down its ears appeasingly. This time the shivering came more quickly upon the man. He was losing his battle with the frost. It was creeping into his body from all sides. The thought of it drove him on, but he ran no more than a hundred feet when he staggered and pitched headlong. It was his last panic. When he had recovered his breath and control, he sat up and entertained in his mind the conception of meeting death with dignity. However, the conception did not come to him in such terms. His idea of it was that he had been making a fool of himself, running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Such was the simile that occurred to him. Well, he was bound to freeze anyway, and he might as well take it decently. With this newfound peace of mind came the first glimmerings of drowsiness. A good idea, he thought, to sleep off to death. It was like taking an anesthetic. Freezing was not so bad as people thought. There were lots worse ways to die. He pictured the boys finding his body next day. Suddenly he found himself with them, coming along the trail and looking for himself. And still with them, he came around a turn in the trail and found himself lying in the snow. He did not belong with himself anymore, for even then he was out of himself, standing with the boys and looking at himself in the snow. It certainly was cold, was his thought. When he got back to the States, he could tell the folks what real cold was. He drifted on from this to a vision of the old-timer on Sulphur Creek. He could see him quite clearly, warm and comfortable, and smoking a pipe. You were right, old hoss, you were right, a man mumbled to the old-timer of Sulphur Creek. Then the man drowsed off into what seemed to him the most comfortable and satisfying sleep he had ever known. The dog sat facing him and waiting. The brief day drew to a close in a long, slow twilight. There were no signs of a fire to be made, and besides, never in the dog's experience had it known a man to sit like that in the snow and make no fire. As the twilight drew on, its eager yearning for the fire mastered it, and with a great lifting and shifting of forefeet, 
It whines softly, then flattened its ears down in anticipation of being chided by the man. But the man remained silent. Later, the dog whined loudly, and still later, it crept close to the man and caught the scent of death. This made the animal bristle and back away. A little longer it delayed, howling under the stars that leaped and danced and shone brightly in the cold sky. Then it turned and trotted up the trail in the direction of the camp it knew. Where were the other food providers and fire providers? What storytelling and what writing, and we thank Dr. Roger McGrath for reading To Build a Fire by Jack London. No one should have to use his eyes to find out where his hands are. Who writes like that? It's so stark, it's so simple. A world opened up to all of us. Man versus nature. Nature wins. And that last vision, seeing that old timer in Sulphur Creek would warned him, don't go up there by yourself. And this rugged guy shrugging that off. What kind of a man needs another man? Well, it turns out this one did. Jack London's To Build a Fire, here on Our American Story. Our American Story.